What does the reproductive system require? In fact, what is the reproductive system in the human species? Male and female. Male and female. There's no other reason for male and female. I mean, even scientifically understood. There's no other reason for male and female except the reproductive system. It is the reproductive system. <laughs> right? So, based on nature and revealed word, what is marriage? Those two coming together to reproduce. I mean, we can talk hours on that. Um, what does the Gnostic want to do against that system? Okay, what's the institution and system that arose from that biological reality? 
the fa you know, the family, the institution of family, marriage, all this stuff. And one agnostics, one to break down and tear down. Every well, everything based on natural and reality. Okay, so you got this female Donna Minkowitz, and I was reading her book. It was called Furious Romance. And one of the most interesting rooms that I entered into in this mansion of Gnosticism has to do with Eros. And there, uh, Herbert Marcuse has a whole book on Eros and its role in history. It's a thing. Like, sexual revolution is part of the Gnostic movement. And in Gnostic movements throughout history, there's always been this kind of like quasi-mystical understanding of sexuality. Sex can be a lot of things. What can't it be about in the Gnostic system? Reproduction. Reproduction is bad because that just perpetuates the cosmic evil. So non-productive or non-reproductive sexuality is the Gnostic ideal because sex is not about reproduction. Sex is about gnosis. It's about connecting to this transcendent love of Eros that's out there. Sophia, really. It's Sophia that you're connecting with. So does it matter what gender the person you're connecting with is that any human being is just a pretense for your own journey of self-discovery. They're just a pretense. Now look at this quote from this woman writing about fearless romance. And then wait till you hear the context of this. She says, I take sex as a sign of radical disobedience. Though I believe I'm obeying the sublime one, Monad, when, I'm, when I have sex, I also feel intensely that I'm fighting back, that each caress is a blow of sorts. And who is it? And who is it a blow against? It's a whack at all the forces that want to deprive me, want me to be caged in. I love disobedience as much as I love sex itself. The rebel god who topples earthly rules, sexual chaos fights the principalities and powers Saint Paul warned against. The rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Relig religious right people love this verse and quote it all the time. Because at bottom, their religion, like mine, is a Manichaean one. Now, she doesn't do it in this one, but in another quote, she says, sex is a gnosis. Sex is a gnosis, like Gnosticism. I mean, it's, it's a gnosis. It's a knowledge. It's an elite knowledge that I have. Now, so that's how they understand sex. Um, and on one hand, it's a fighting against the system. You know, it's, it's every time you, 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 you perform sex that's violent or that's disruptive of the created order or that's disordered, you're fighting against the imposition of these natural arrangements that Yaldabaoth set up. Meanwhile, the, the glimpse of, of uh, gnosis that you have in your sexuality is transcendent, takes you to another place. Um, adultery is justified because it's, you're not confined to that imprisonment of marriage, but you get this release into this higher, higher form of love. There's a whole body of literature on this. Guess what the surprising context of this quote is? So the whole premise of her book, this woman set out to write this book on uh, the religious right. And so she began visiting all these um, like religious right groups like, uh, 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 what was this thing in the late 90s? Um, I feel like Biden. Um, uh, you know, the thing. Um, yeah, what was it? The promise keepers. She, and, then, and then who's the family guy? Dobson, and then she went and visited this like Toronto Charismatic Festival or whatever, visited all these religious right organizations, and she was going to go there as a writer, as a leftist writer, and she was going to nail them to the wall. 
You know, she was going to prove that they're all bad. Well, she went there, and guess what she discovered? Yes, that their vibes animating how she believed were exactly very similar to the vibes animating her radical sexuality. And this is, this is a quote of that. And in fact, this particular quote came on the, on the heels of, she was at the, this women's gathering in Toronto, a charismatic gathering, and she was just enthralled by one of the leaders, a leader, who had these like high-heeled boots, and she was strutting around up there and talking spirituality, and she was like aroused by this. You know, like this is this is like a like a fascist leader. She was like, you know, this fascist leader. There's something erratic about that, and that's she proceeded to quote that. But I, to me, a big part of my book is talking about uh, evangelical movement is by is ultimately a Gnostic movement, and and everything comes up. The altar is upstream from everything. So these movements that happened at uh, what's it, Azusa Street in turn of the century, that led to the 60s. It wasn't vice versa. It started there. The, these movements in religion affected what's going on in our culture. That's why I say we are, you know, you, you are the soldiers. Theologically, we have to get to the roots of what's going on here. It's a theological error. We are in the middle of a theological error, a heresy that, that has been unleashed. It's a religious movement that is a degraded form of Christianity. All right, let me get to the next. Uh, yeah. Mr. Griffin, I was going to say, if it doesn't interrupt you too much, uh, tell the people, feel free to go up and get what you need. Okay, yeah, anytime you want to go up. Just because works. the light's off, it's still a little. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Put the light back. <coughs> All right, get the slideshow going. From the beginning. Wait. All right. So I did want to talk about because again I've explained the problem and I wanted to not offer solutions but kind of give hope and say you know what's our role in all this and and how should we maybe change some of our way of thinking. But there is one more thing I wanted to talk about and that's the political angle and this gets into Hegel and I think this is important and I want to I, I do want to spend some time on it so I'm going to run through this. And hopefully we'll end and have some good, decent time for questions. So here's the thesis number two that I want to talk about. Hegel, the Lutheran heretic. The political philosopher Hegel, 17th century political philosopher, is ground zero for the current political madness we are in. From him came the idea that politics is a product of historical progress of enlightened consciousness. Okay? Hegel's project was to demythologize millenarianism and repackage it for the modern world. That, that's what we're going to talk about, so don't get too scared off of that. All right, so there's a several-step process by how we got, how, how the politics of today, progressivism, this Marxism, this authoritarianism, it's, if you really look at it as we are, it's rooted in a Christian heresy and is a Christian cult. Okay? Step one, go back to the ancient world about 300 AD, and let's talk about synergism, which is the belief that we work with God for our salvation. That as you, so let me just read this. Synergism means working with God for salvation. Free will supplants original sin. As Lutherans, we believe original sin says there's no hope on your own. You need God. You need his grace. Synergism says, no, the free will has got all sorts of powers able to make yourself a better person and to make yourself even perfect. Well, let's make a long story short here. 
well, point two. If you're perfectible, what else is perfectible? You can make a perfect society. If enough perfected people gather together to make a better world, right? Education is the means to reforming the soul and society. Education is very much a big part of this whole way of thinking. Jesus is not the savior, but he's a moral example of what is possible for man. Jesus shows what's possible. He was perfect. You know, we too can be perfect like Jesus. Um, and five, centered on monasteries and mysticism as guides and gurus to the perfected self, not on church, ministry, and sacrament. So in other words, if you believe you're saved by grace, where are you going to be Sunday morning? Church, kneeling down, are you doing anything? Right. Yeah, and prayer is ultimately an action of saying, not me, <laughs> right? And then you're kneeling at the altar and doing what? Total passive reception, total gift reception, right? If you're at a monastery on Sunday morning, well, you're probably going to church too, I mean, they have church, <laughs> At a monastery, what are you doing? What's your main goal? What's your whole agenda? Become better and better. Become perfect. Mysticism. You, 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 set, us up, you set upon a course of personal self-perfection. Um, they took an op... Okay, this is really important. This happened at the time that the Roman Empire became Christianized. And they took an optimistic view of the Christianization of the Roman Empire... Augustine did not. In his City of God, he said, no, the church needs to remain separate from the secular society. Even though the whole Roman Empire has become Christian, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the church and the word of God. But others took a different view and said, no, this is, this is Christ's coming. This is, the, this is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. So you see how that all goes together. If you have the power to perfect yourself, Based, you know, you do get some grace, you do get a, a, you know, the glimpse, the gnosis, the Holy Spirit will help you, but those that are elite, that are elect, gather together, and they can make a better society. Now, there's a lot of dynamics going on with that that lead to a very cult way of thinking. But, um, so that goes hand in hand with this view that this is how God is bringing about the kingdom of God today. We can, Obama, in his campaign in 2008, said, I do believe that we are bringing the kingdom of God on earth. He was a, what we're going to call a millenarian. All right? It's a specific theological position that many people, including Ted Cruz. So this isn't the left, just a thing of the left. It's also the right. Evangelicals believe this idea. Oh, we're going to have a Christian nation. That's how God's going to bring about his, his kingdom. What was the term? Millenarian? Mil we'll, we'll, I'll introduce it again. It's millenarianism. All right. So, okay, I use this phrase, realized eschatology. And this is funny. I mean, for people that read, um, we demand a complete and unconditional immunization of the eschaton now. What on earth does that mean? How many of you kind of get the joke in that? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, okay, let me explain it. The eschaton in Greek means the end of the world. So when are we going to, when is Christ going to return and create a perfect world where there's no hunger, no starvation, no disease? On the last day, it, it's outside of this world. It's at the end of time. What if you believe that God's making his kingdom come today? 
Well, now you're, the eschaton, the end, we can make it now. Healthcare, now. Peace, now. Whatever, now. This is not where it's going to happen. All right, let's talk about this. Realize eschatology or imminentizing. Imminenting means making it imminent. In other words, making it now. So it's just imminentizing the eschaton is a complex way of saying we're going to take what is deferred to the world to come and we're going to make it real now. And the whole thing there is God is using humanity to bring about his kingdom in this world today. This is the well, this is the whole point of this lecture. Okay. So you got a horizontal eschatology, this is what we are. Christ's kingdom will come at the end of time as we and we participate in it now by faith in the word. There's no relationship between it and the world except in a salt of the earth kind of way. You need the resurrected flesh for final salvation, right? This is why we're never, none of us are ever going to say, well, we can have this now. Well, look at me, for crying out loud, like dying. <laughs> I'm just like slowly, like I need a new body in order to truly enjoy what Christ ultimately gives, all right? What do Gnostics not like or need in their system? Body, okay? Vertical, so they believe in a vertical eschatology, what Gnostics are. Because the flesh isn't needed for salvation, you can have resurrection, salvation, enlightenment right now. Fusion of both, and this is what the millenarians that we're going to talk about, and Hegelians and progressives are. We can have political salvation now in real material forms, meaning we can have a utopia. God's kingdom manifests on earth through the willful participation, the synergism, in the political process of men with enlightened consciousness. And enlightened consciousness happens through education. So as we educate the next generation and teach them about what's possible and if we just do this, we can bring about a perfect world, that new generation, the young people, become divinized. They're the, they're the vanguards of bringing about a new age that's going to be totally different than the old age. That's going to be better. We're going to build back better. We're going to make a better world. You know, we're going to, we're going to destroy the old and bring in the new. That's, that's the world we live in right now. What does that turn education into? Three R's? It's catechesis. It's catechism class for the coming age. Right? That's kind of scary, right? All right. Step two. So step one is that synergism and that idea of, of realized eschatology or, or bringing the end to now in the sense of the Roman Empire is, is the Christianization of the world. Step two is Joachimism. Who is Joachim? Joachim was a medieval monk who believed that there are three ages throughout history. The age of the Father, the age of the Son, the age of the Holy Spirit. On the far left, you see the age of the Father. That was the Old Testament age. That was an age in which God, well, I should have wrote man down there, but God and man are separate and the priests and the, the religious system kind of mediates between the two. And the relationship from one to the other is all just their obedience to rituals, kind of blind obedience to God. Christ comes and brings God and man closer. And now, it's, this is that whole thing we went over with the God and man and the church and the role of the church. What mediates God for you? Like, what, what's the mediation of God for you? On Sunday morning, church. church. And that's the minister acts on Christ's behalf to deliver you body and blood, to preach God's word, 
So you still have these formal qualities, these formal things that are needed in order for God to engage us. And that's, like I said, that's that diagram we get. In the new age of the spirit, that, well, in the case of Joaquin, guess who would inaugurate that age? Joaquin. He is the prophet of the new age. It's a new age. God and man would kind of be fused together because God would be working directly on you. And there, in, 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 in stage two, or in your case, is there a clear boundary where God ends and you begin? Yes, the sacrament. You know, I'm going out there and there's God, here's me. We're separate. In stage three, that line starts to get, become kind of fuzzy. I just feel there's change in the air. I feel like God's moving us to do this. I just, I just feel it. You can smell it. You know, I read that by an emergent Christian. You can smell change in the air. I guess that sounds like an onion. <laughs> um, but you, you can just kind of, it's change, it's coming. And, and, it's, and we're part of that. Man cooperates with God to bring about his kingdom. There's no clear delineation where God ends and man begins. Man becomes the hand of God in history as he attains gnosis or enlightened consciousness or becoming woke. Education, not faith, is the driving force. And then the new man from the new age is elite, elect. People from the old age must evolve or die. Well, what do you all belong to? The old age. You're just not understanding the changing times we're in. Evolve or die. I mean, it, it, did that movement not start in the church? Hey, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get rid of that liturgy. You gotta get rid of those old ways of thinking. You gotta start introducing all these new ideas, or you're gonna die as a church. So we did that for 40 years, and what's, what's happening to the church? Somehow we still lost a bunch of members. You know, like that was dumb. Um, all right, so step two is, is this medieval monk called Joaquin who, who created this idea that we are moving into an age of the spirit where he works directly in people and through people, God is going to bring about the new kingdom. Millenarians. This, throughout the Middle Ages, there were these sectarian cults who would rise up and it would always start with a prophet who would believe God spoke to him and God told them that there's going to be an elite elect people who the Holy Spirit's going to work directly upon. They're going to gather together to create a communalistic society where there's no property, where there's no debt, where sometimes there's no marriage, because you're all sharing wives. Um, where every, you know, everything is going to be wonderful. It's a utopia. These cults would start up. They would, they would last for a few months while they lived in love and peace and harmony. And then they would run into the problem that no one was producing anything. So they would start getting hungry. So when you get hungry, what do you do? Start stealing from the neighbors. So then they got militant. Well, that's perfectly fine because whose hand in history are you? And what's God going to do to the old world when he comes? Destroy it. So you're God's hand in the world to destroy the people that aren't woke and haven't changed with you. So then, and besides that, you get food from them. So you go around and you start, and then after a while you just die. You fizzle up and die. <laughs> this millenarian movement has been going on throughout history. Um, 
In the 1900s, it happened in various locations in America. There's a, there's a city in Indiana, uh, Indiana called New Harmony, I think. You guys know New Harmony at all? Um, that was a millenarian movement. But these are cults, and, and they're very prominent. Just one quote from this book of 100 chapters. Brethren of the Yellow Cross would bring about an age of peace and prosperity under a resurrected Frederick. They would, quote, smash Babylon in the name of God and bring the whole world under Frederick's rule so that there shall be one shepherd, one sheepfold, and one faith throughout the whole world. Whoever strikes a wicked man for his evil doing, for instance, for blasphemy, if he beats him to death, he shall be called a servant of God. That's the attitude of a millenarian. You are God's hand of judgment in history to exact judgment on the old order, those people that aren't woke to the new radical revolution. There's some examples in history. The hippie heretics, they're, they're fun. All right. So, uh, you can do a Wikipedia on this. The, the case of monsters, well, so this is exactly what happened here. You had these, these apostles that entered into the city of Munster, and they preached this message of the holy, you know, the, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. As we work together, we're going to cancel debts. We're going to live in peace. We're going to live in harmony. We're going to share the land. Everything's going to be wonderful. And the Lutherans and Catholics didn't go along with that, so they drove them out of the city, literally in the middle of a snowstorm. They drove them out, laughed at them as they left. Like, you're, you're part of the old order, you Catholics and Lutherans, be gone. You're not part of the new order. So finally, they had all the right people in, in place, and they set up a utopia in the city of Munster. Well, things aren't happening as they planned, and they believed that God was going to return, and it's going to, you know, the, the second coming was going to be at hand. And they kept on pushing this message, and nothing was happening. Meanwhile, the neighboring bishop and the, and the lords in the area were kind of doing a siege on the town. And it, it just, eventually the thing had to fizzle out. But what's interesting is as they made their big radical revolution in Munster about the new age replacing the old, they went around and they tore down the old icons. They tore down the old statues. They renamed streets. They renamed everything because all the symbols of the old age have to be destroyed and you have to set up a new, you know, the new the kingdom. And, you know, what does that sound like, right? Well, eventually these guys were killed, tortured, and put in those three baskets for like 400 years. <laughs> and their skeletons were hanging from there as a warning that don't ever do that again. Huh? Yeah, the stages are still there. I don't know. Are the bones still there? That'd be cool if they were. The pink birds and stuff down there. But that's kind of like how people used to deal with these millenarian fanatical movements. Like, I'm not going to riff on that one. <laughs> but because radical Islam is a millenarian movement. Like, and, and all of progressivism is too, so we can't really fight against pretty much what everything is right now. Um, all right, step four. So after millenarianism, so, so you understand millenarianism as this spiritual movement based on this, this ancient heresy of synergism and this understanding of the kingdom of God, this kind of bringing the kingdom of God here and now where we're going to have utopia today. Hegel, this Lutheran pietist, grew up in Württemberg where he absorbed all these ideas. Well, he was absorbing these ideas while in England there is a philosophical movement that was extremely, um, that's what I'm looking for, rational, is that where it starts with an E? 
enlightenment. Not enlightenment. It was like the rational way of thinking and whatever. But the, 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 the British Enlightenment, empirical, was very empirically based, okay? And, and they, were, they were like the cool guys. You know, the English, the English people, philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, um, Hume, these are the cool guys, you know, in the, in the Enlightenment. And Hegel's looking at them and saying, how can I make millenarianism have some scientific and empirical credence? How can I make it acceptable in the world? Because living by pure materialism and empiricism kind of saps out the spirit. We've got to keep the spirit awake in this. So his whole project was to demythologize millenarianism and repackage it in a secular political potion. He is the father of Marx. He is the father of progressivism. He is the father of this whole understanding of history as this revolution of ages. He, he's ground zero for everything. And now you can understand why I say he, he was a Lutheran pietist growing up in a Lutheran area, dealing and embracing a specific heresy that every Lutheran should be very aware of. And it goes back to everything we've talked about, about not locating God in the sacraments where he's supposed to be located, not locating God in the word. But even Hegel would say, you know, religion is more a matter of the heart, you know. And so and his big thing is that history moves as people with enlightened consciousness wake up and change the world according to this evolved system or, or the God's, God's emerging evolution through history. That's his big contribution. But like I say, he is the father of progressivism, communism, fascism. Fascism believed in the age theory. He's huge. And we, we need to be aware of this. And, and it's funny because even like academics are starting to kind of wake up to the, um, to the religious angle of Hegel. You know, like, man, this guy was, this guy was not really a thinker, he was more of a, a theologian. And they're starting to realize that now. All right. So those are, the step, those are the four steps that we go from a Christian heresy to what we have right now. Does that make sense? I mean, first off, do you guys recognize the, the, the idea that this movement going on in our world right now is a religion? It's absolutely a religion. When you have people, when you, I mean, where is it? When Trump got elected. People literally screaming into the air, screaming in the cosmos. Like, I mean, can you get it any more Gnostic moment? Like, oh, the archons, the archon, chief archon Trump has taken over the world and he's going to oppress me and I'm trapped. Ah! You know, a beyond logos, a transcending the logos moment. Um, but like, it, it, this moment we are in is a religious moment and, and Okay, well, let's talk about this guy, Eric Vagelin. I think it's a, with a C, not a K. But anyways, Eric Vagelin, I, I ran across him, and a lot of people who are older know, are well acquainted with Eric Vagelin. Um, but he's, he's the one that would first identify Gnosticism as the roots of political totalitarianism. All right? He made that connection, and he, and he, he does this beautiful study and talks about Puritans, that was an example of a totalitarian movement. Um, talks about a lot of the activity going on in the early colonies. And basically says that this, and, and he goes back to Hegel too. 
and says he is ground zero for where we are at with all these totalitarian movements in the world today. So, so he's another person I would recommend if you want to get more into this. He's a very, very uh, interesting guy. So he talks about four symbols of Joaquin's influence. Number one, this idea of the revolution of ages. That history doesn't kind of slowly evolve as people you know, learn to adapt to new changes and, and, and we kind of like, all right, well that might not be a good idea. Let's grow and learn. It's like history of growth. Radical, coming from the word Latin word for root, means you uproot the old and transplant something new. There is no redemption of the past. There's no slow growth of the past. There has to be a complete change, a revolution of ages. And he brilliantly points out how throughout history there's always been this idea of these like three ages. Like Marx. Why would he talk about three ages? That's a mystical understanding of history if you ever heard of one. Well, so humanism, for instance, has ancient, medieval, modern. Kant has theological, metaphysical, and positive science. Hegel, three stages of consciousness, the age of the despot, the, the aristocratic age, and modern age. Marx talked about primitive communism, age of the bourgeois, age of communism. Schelling talked about a Petrine age, a Pauline age, and a Johannine age. Um, this goes straight back to Joaquin, who had his three ages understanding of history. And we still get that today. We get, you pastors will remember in the 80s and 90s, this idea of, you know, you go to a pastor's conference and, you know, some whiz kid would get up there and talk about, oh, there's new changing paradigms. You know, talking about paradigms. There's changing paradigms of how we have to understand the church. Um, my first Winkle I went to, that was, it was a bunch of seven Xers. And they were like, we've got to change the paradigm of the church. I was just absolutely appalled. Who, who's, who defines the church? I mean, who does? Jesus! And, and here, you know, oh, we, gotta, we have to change it. What are you nuts? Um, and, and, but that's the, that was a big attitude back then, and it, and it led to this revolution of you know, worship, a revolution of, of how things are done in the church, and, and it just, like I said before, I mean, it hasn't produced anything good. It's just divided the church, really, is what it's done. And division is not a work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, dividing people against each other in the church is not working. Um, all right. Number two, symbol of Joachimism. There's always a leader that, that arises. Gnostics called their pastors, not pastor or minister, but they called them a leader. This idea of the prostates. They called them a leader. And I just find it very interesting that the, the importance of the leader in millenarian and totalitarian movements. Who's the most famous example of that? Der Führer, or Il Duce. Il Duce. But then you still, like, is leadership training not like one of the main topics of the hotel conference? Oh, we're gonna do leadership training. Everything is, a, I remember I went to a pastor's conference once, and this guy was giving this talk on leadership, of course, and his so we're at a conference talking about leadership. He's all dressed in black, you know, real cool looking, and not with a collar. And uh, his whole thing was when, you know, when we're supposed to get together and resume the conference, everybody was supposed to do this. Well, what is that? Who, who silences their people like this? The Boy Scouts, right? 
So, okay, we're going to do that. So, you, you know, get up, and, and then you're all supposed to do it at the same time. So I'm going to do it, and everybody else is going to do it. So we're at a leadership conference, and everybody's like, I, I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Sorry. It's too close. Um, too soon. So anyways, but this idea of the, you got this prophetic leader, this spiritually endowed, charismatic center of the cult, who's, who's the one that's, you know, kind of, it, it always works like this. You got like the leader who's, who's endowed by the spirit. Everybody's endowed by the spirit because you're all alike, but he's just a little more endowed by the spirit. And we need him as a temporary agent to get us to the point where the whole world will be one and you'll need no leaders. Does that leader ever go away? No. no. Um, so you got the new man of the new age, the divinized man. Transhumanism, that's its modern incarnation. And I think we were talking a little bit before about that. But this idea that there's going to be a new man for the new age and evolution is bringing about this kind of jolt in evolutionary history where there's going to be people that are just a notch above the rest of us. And they're going to be the vanguards of the new age. Right? So you know you got the prophet, the precursor to that. So that's all your experts and elite academicians. academicians. And then, if, but then, like I said, eventually you're going to get to the point where you have a symbol of spirituality, spiritually autonomous persons not needing any supports. Or, you know, we're going to get to that point where we're not going to need institutions. Everybody will be dem democratic. Everybody will be sharing with each other. Everything will work. We'll have a community of monks without the sacramental support of the church. In modern times, this demands the deconstruction of existing institutions, the family and church and communism, but I wrote this like four years ago. We're in the middle of a deconstructing of our whole society. Like, this, this is what's going on behind that. They are bringing about the new age. It's the great reset. It's the great build back better. Build back better from what? Well, from what you're destroying. Right? That's, that's, that's the, the mindset. We're going to destroy it, and we're going to build back something better in the Great Reset and the Great New World Order. All right. All right, so, good, we got good timing. Um, so, current state of things. Elite institutions, corporations, and media assume management of a narrative which is a degraded form of Christianity. So, do you get that? Like, this whole point of these, these two talks is that this is a Christian heresy. You know, I mean, here's another example. So, all right. Who used to take care of education? Church. Who used to take care of medical care? Church. Who used to take care of welfare? Church. Church. Who takes care of it now? State. Government. This is, this is Hegel. This is Hegel. The, in, in his mind, Whereas you used to need an institution like the church to teach you charity, to get you to the point where, okay, we, we, need, to, you know, we need to take care of the poor, we need to educate our youth, we need to um, take, take care of the sick. Okay, that, that's why we build hospitals. The, the institution would work through that. Well, in the new age, you don't need a church to educate you. All this love for your neighbor is written into your DNA. If it's written into your DNA and you're like the perfected individual, through the education system, what do you need a church to teach you anymore for? That's the attitude. And so we can have the perfect society without any need for church. 
All right, so elite institutions, corporations, and media assume a management of a narrative which is a degraded form of Christianity. Gnosis replaces logos. Woke replaces rationality. And you're, you're, I think you're seeing that and you made that point. Radicalism replaces redemption. The old age can only be canceled and torn down, certainly not built upon. Right? There's no, I mean, who is it? Generally, he's Satan. He's not, he's not a human being who had good and bad and happened to be caught up in a situation that was kind of evil. He's, there's nothing redeemable about him. Nothing that we can learn from him. That, that's radical. Radicalism versus redemption. Puritanism replaces sinner and saint. You have to have total buy-in to the program without any deviation, any sort of impurity in your thinking. And, you know, you're not a sinner and saint, someone who's kind of struggling and working to live according to Christ and be conformed to Christ. No, you have to have total buy-in, total purity of thought, or else you're going to be canceled. Imperium replaces ecclesia. <coughs> Every aspect of life is politicized. You know? Um, and I'm going to just leave it at that. It's, it's, it's a thought I've been working with, and I don't want to delve too much into that. And then we've talked about this. Eros replaces agape. Not love for neighbor, or enemies certainly, you don't love your enemies at all, but projected love of self on the screen of an abstracted collective humanity. So I love humanity. I would love to tell this story. John Lennon. Anybody know this moment in his life? He's about to hop on a train, and he's going to go to India to learn about love. Love for humanity. Who did he leave behind? His wife and kids, Julian. Of Julian, he said, oh, I think he slipped out of a bottle, on a, whiskey, a bottle of whiskey on a Saturday night. He said that about his son. And that's his attitude towards his wife and family. He's going to learn about love. He loves humanity. He loves an abstraction. But the actual people, his neighbors, the flesh and blood people in his presence are mistakes, cosmic mistakes. That I'm not responsible for that. All right. How can Christians respond? All right, so this is kind of the final capstone of this talk. How can we respond? you got to deal with Gnosticism's fundamental weakness. And so, fundamental weakness, number one, is its denial of nature and reality. Well, as a matter of fact, where does everybody live in? you got quite a bit of, you know, when someone's in a pool and they're denying water, you, all you got to do is say, dude, you're in a pool of water. You feel it? You know. So... Along these lines, this character, I didn't even put his name in there. Horace, an ancient Roman poet, has this beautiful quote that I like to use. You can chase out nature with a pitchfork, but it will always come rushing back. Fifty years ago, we said that a fetus is just a blob of cells. What has happened in the ensuing 50 years since? Sonograms, people realizing what it is, live births of five-months-old fetuses, babies. And what's happening to the culture now? It's starting to turn against that. I think the same thing will happen to gay marriage. I think transgenderism will happen sooner than later. But all these things that are kind of trying to defy reality are going to come crashing in, and, and reality will come back uh, with, a, with a pitchfork, or it'll come back rushing back. All right, so let's talk about this reality. We talked, I broached on this before. And I really like this because I think it's, I love, we spent, part of original sin, I would argue, is that we spend an awful lot of our time in the realm of fantasy. Not, 
not reflecting our mind the created order, but in this kind of like la-la land of fantasy and projection of our own ideas on reality. So you got these two people talking. They're talking normally, and it's a Logos moment. They're, they're discussing something, they're talking back and forth, and every, you know, they're learning about one another. Again, in both of those situations, who's managing their person? Each person is managing because they can spay the words. In the second situation, now he's dealing with that person through a Facebook post he puts on, maybe, say, supporting Black Lives Matter. Now, how is he, is he engaged with her, actually, or even in the realm of Logos, but he's going to impose on that, oh, she's one of them, right? She probably believes this. They, they're like, they're a rat, you know, they're this, that, this, that, and other thing. And, you know, has this whole narrative by which that person is being defined. Who's managing that person now? So this is kind of exactly what happened to me. It was, it was in the middle of the first kind of BLM movement in the, like 2015. And I, I'm an army chaplain and I was at drill or at AT. And they, they tasked me to go back to a unit and spend some time with a young uh, sergeant, or an NCF, what she was, but she had just lost a relative. So I'm like, okay, I'll go spend time with her. She was black. So we spent a lot of time talking, and we started talking about the whole BLM movement. We had a wonderful conversation, you know? I mean, I learned that it actually is a thing, you know? And she learned from me that police aren't evil, you know? Like, like there's, you know, and what were we doing? Face-to-face -face talking. Now, what would happen if I just sat in my own echo chamber, you know, of, well, I, I like Tucker Carlson, don't get me wrong, but like a, a, a Fox News Network bubble, and saw that person, you know, like, I'm from BLM and blah, blah, blah. Now, suddenly, I'm managing her entire world according to my narrative. And everybody's doing this now, because we're all over here. And we're kind of in have to, you know, because it's because of you know lockdowns and all that. But does that make sense? Um, when you are managing another person or another thing or your world, you are living in the realm of fantasy. You're not living in the realm of reality. And I think we got to be careful because I think that happens more often than we would, we would like. Um, I, you know, there, there's a lot of examples of that, but I, I think a lot of people are really falling into kind of this Gnostic narrative of, well, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, <clears throat> you get the, get the joke there? This is something we're kind of working with at one of my churches, like, can Satan be any more clear? <laughs> you know what Steve Jobs' daughter's name is? Yes, Eve. He's broadcasting exactly what he's doing. Now, let's talk about the forbidden fruit. When God created Eve and Adam, what was good? Everything. Everything. So they knew what good was, right? What didn't they know? What evil was. What evil was. And what is evil? Everything that's not good. And what is all good? The created world, right? Everything God created is good. So evil would be anything beyond the created world. 
All right? So you will, by eating that fruit, you'll gain knowledge of good and evil. Well, you know what good is already, because you live in it. Well, what's evil? Beyond the good. What did Eve do with that apple? An apple is just an apple. What did that apple become to her? Well, God, yeah, that's exactly an idol. But in her mind, like, oh, this apple will give me what? Knowledge. Well, more than that, what? Power. Power to be God. In other words, this apple will be an access to this beautiful world where I'm going to be God and I will be the creator. Problem is, is God had created everything already. What's the only thing that Eve could really create that would be beyond God's created order? Yeah, evil. Evil, exactly. And what that creation would be is the figment of her own mind. Like, I'm going to create this. So I see you there, and instead of me, you know, if I were in Eden, I would look at you and say, oh, sir, let's talk. You know, tell me about yourself. Tell me your story. And Wow, cool. If I'm Eve, you're, like, you're, you're the apple, and I see a different world. I see, you know, I see what I'm going to manage you to be. That's the original sin. That's the original sin. Because that's what all sin is. It's not being content with the Eden God has put you in and wanting to kind of grasp beyond and grab something new and, and, and situate it according to this narrative. All right? Does, does that make sense? It does a lot. I, I mean, I've spent hours talking about this at my church. But I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Well, what is this? I mean, when you spend time on this, who's managing your reality? Everything. Well, but who's making the choices to go where you're going to go? You are. You can make a world and be in a realm of light that's exactly the world that you want. It's totally a projection of your own desires, your own disconnect. Oh, I don't want to play with my kid right now. I mean, that's boring and look at gray and dingy outside. But ah, oh, this world of light. That's exciting. That's a realm of excitement. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, I mean, that's what kind of creeps me out when I start thinking about this stuff. All right, so what's the response to all that? Ah, here you go, Dave Chappelle. So the response to that is don't give up the dialogue. Don't stop talking. Because talking uses words, and words reflect reality, and, and that calls people out of the realm of fantasy into the realm of real stuff. So God created the earth and all its elements. Language, grammar, and logic reflect this creation. Gnostics would tear down language because they want to tear down the creation, re replace it with their utopian fantasy-based vision. Every statement of truth reflecting the created world deflates the fantasy projection of the Gnostic. Reality is the perennial enemy of Gnosticism, as it always has been. So, what is that to say? Don't disengage with the world. Just don't. If you've got grandkids who are going off and going into a little world, grab them up, especially, like I've, I've been saying this to veterans, you know, grab them. Tell them about your experience in whenever, Vietnam. I mean, tell, talk to them. Um, talk. That, that, that's one of the main things. So, and, and, and don't be afraid to say obvious things that don't need even support. Dave Chappelle, how, we, how many of you know this whole story of Dave Chappelle? He's a comedian, and he appears on Netflix, and he's always kind of been edgy and kind of out there. Well, he recently came out with a special 
In part of his comedy routine, he said this. Gender is a fact. Every human being in this room, every human being on Earth, had to pass through the legs of a woman to be on Earth. How can you deny that? I mean, you can't argue against that. And that's the way, that's the major way that this battle is going to be won, is by people not being afraid to say obvious realities. Yeah. Everybody passed through the legs of a woman? <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. That's like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, you're right. We all came from women, man born of women, you know. So, and Christians need to do the same thing with our own truths. Like, Holy Communion is the body and blood of Christ. It's just, don't argue it. Jesus said it. It's what Luther did when he was debating Zwingli. Um, Man and woman, and this is one of the truths I've been saying a lot that kind of like, whoa, never thought about that way, but there's no other purpose of male and female but reproduction. What, what are the implications of that? You know, we all have, we have a variety of systems, nervous system, gastronomical system, skeletal system, muscular, skeletal, whatever. The reproductive system is man and woman. What is, where, where did we get this idea that it's something other than that? It's nuts. And it's... And take, keep the Bible out of it. Science doesn't even support that idea. You know? I mean, if we've evolved, well, guess what? We've evolved to be male and female as our reproductive system. All right. So don't give up the dialogue. Don't be afraid to state clear truths that don't even need explanation. You know? That's a man. That's a woman. Response number two, of course, and this is the bigger one, the incarnate word. Implications of the word became flesh against the life lived in family. And I, I said this a lot last year when you know, the whole COVID fears happened. God, when, when he saw that man was diseased by original sin, he decided to come into our flesh, connect with us in our flesh, touch people in their flesh, like St. Peter's mother-in-law, the lepers, and when he touched them, what happened to him? He got sick. He got contagious. He had to be cast outside the city gates with the unclean because he connected with people. In-person church is a non-negotiable. There is no online church. Because how do you receive the body and blood of Christ through this? You don't. Christianity and the church draws flesh and blood together around the flesh and blood of Christ. This whole movement over the last few years is the ultimate Gnostic movement. Atomize people, separate them, disconnect people from flesh and blood neighbors, and get them to understand each other not according to who they are, but according to this narrative that Facebook or whatever, Fox or whatever is putting. So we don't see our neighbors anymore. It's really just diabolical. All right. Uh, all right, I've done that enough. Okay. Gnosticism's fundamental weakness number two. The whole Gnostic vision, would you say the whole Gnostic vision is pessimistic or optimistic? Pessimistic. Highly pessimistic. They look at the world and they'd see nothing but dark evils and powers and 
archons and Yaldabaoth and all these evils systems. Um, and consequently, what what's their answer to that problem? Tear it all down. Tear it all. That, that's a millenarian, which is a Gnostic kind of form. But the original Gnostic, if you're a purist Gnostic, what would you do? All oh, the world is all evil. I'm just going to go off in the mountains, escape, and have my own little salvation moment, me and myself. If you're a millenarian, I'm going to become the Elvabeoth. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make it a better place. So in other words, it's either kind of like escape or radically revolutionize. But it's all rooted in the fundamental idea that the world is evil. And if the world is evil, the world still needs salvation. Fourth horseman of the apocalypse, or the first horseman of the apocalypse, is a false Christ. And I never understood that. Why do you have famine, pestilence, and war? And then you have this like fourth horseman that, like, oh, it might be Jesus. I'm like, no, it's not Jesus. It's the false Christ. It's the Antichrist. Why? Because it always goes hand in hand when evils happen in the world, like a famine, pestilence, or war, and people say the world is still in need of salvation. It needs a Christ to rise up and save us from these evils. What's wrong with that statement? Huh? The Savior has already come. And where is he sitting right now? Right hand of God. There's nothing that needs to be saved. He rules over all things. So if you see evil in the world, who, who's, who's owning that? Who owns the evil of the world? I mean, who's like managing the evils of the world? No. Christ did. What's he doing with it? What's he working with it? He's working our salvation. God works all things for the good of those who love the Lord. He's working good with it, all right? Which is just a beautiful truth. So, I mean, us conservative Christians, you know, we, we get into these kind of conspiracy, you know, and is that my next slide? You know, the darkened, depressed vision of the world. The big global elites are destroying the world and keeping me down. The world systems and institutions are corrupt and need to be torn down. Dark powers are at work in the world. Man's solution, numb yourself through various self-medications or start a radical revolution or escape altogether. And that would be the numbing thing, the escape. Is the world evil? The world is very evil. <laughs> but is the world essentially evil? If it's evil, why did Christ come and try to save it? And redeem it. And the Psalms itself says, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And Paul, talking about Gnostics, specifically dealing with Gnostics, prophesies about them and says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared without iron, forbidding to marry, because marriage is, you know, part of this world order, and commanding to abstain from foods, that was another Gnostic thing, which, they were vegetarians, interesting, um, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good. That's why we give thanks for it. Is there anything in this world, even the evils of the world that happen, that we cannot give thanks for? 
No. Because if there is one part of this world that we cannot be thankful for, who's not in charge of that moment? Christ. We're, we are confessing that Christ doesn't sit at God's right hand and rule over all things. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Is this, this is the last one. Yeah, there we go. All right. So this is where it gets fun. So Christ rules over all things. And he did that when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? What was triggered by, the, by Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father? Who did he send when he sat down at the right hand of the Father? Holy Spirit. He said of the Holy Spirit, he will take of what is mine, right? He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay. Let's work with that. What belongs to Jesus? Well, what belongs to Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the Father? Everything. Everything. Rule over all things. Um, a status with God that's beautiful, surrounded by angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Really cool stuff belongs to Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Everything he has, he will give to you by the Holy Spirit through his word. If that word fills your soul, I mean, when that word fills your soul, another little detail. On Pentecost, one of the promises of the Holy Spirit is that your young men will see visions. visions. I just never liked that. Well, that sounds charismatic. Heck no. The Holy Spirit fills you with a word that delivers to you, into your heart, soul, whatever, everything that Christ has sitting at the right hand of the Father, including his rule over all things. Okay? Where do you see that vision? Where do you see Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father? Where do you, where do you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? In worship. That's our vision. I mean, you go to, you know, think about it. You go to this place Sunday morning, and you're saying, yeah, I just saw God teach to me, and I had his body and blood, and, and you know, we were in heaven, surrounded by angels and angel archangels, and all the time to heaven. Are you nuts? <laughs> like, are you hallucinating? Yeah. And it's called the Word of God. Because words create worlds, right? That's what the Holy Spirit did at the beginning of the first creation. Words create worlds. Words create, are creating another world. And that's the liturgical architecture of our faith. And we carry that vision with us. That's what the book of Revelation is about. So this picture here. You got John. John is exiled. So he might have a darkened vision, right? Oh, my world sucks. I'm in prison. This, everything's awful. Evil, you know, Roman Empire is, you know, they're... they're they're taking over the world. They're a dark, evil empire. And what does John see? He gets a vision, which is the exact vision you have on Sunday morning, of Christ, the Lamb of God, sitting on the altar. And how does that be interpreted? So who's, who's in control of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? You see them galloping up there? War festival? festival. Who's, who runs those? Who sent them out? The Lamb. He's running that show. And John now understands that all the stuff happening in history is really God working everything for the good of the church, for the ultimate climax when he returns and rules in righteousness and makes everything right. Now, so the bottom line for, under, for our dealing with Gnosticism, 
How do we look at the world? Do we have that darkened vision? No. The world is good. It's full of the goodness of the Lord. That's why our heart breaks out in Eucharist every week. Because we look at a world and say, my goodness, everything God is working for good. Do you think that message might be attractive to a world that's highly anxious, depressed, suicidal, has massive mental health issues, watches TV and all they get is this doomsday? And then we, we go to church and we have a message of, no, earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord is, is at hand. I, I, that's, our, that's our ultimate testimony to the world that we need to be, we need to be sharing. So, all right, well, that's, that's that. Um, any questions? Any questions on that, that talk? Yes? You can tell that what the Christian church has is the solution for the world's problems. What Christ has given us, what God has given us, what's just after Adam and Eve put on the holy of the leaves and gave them the animal sacrifice. Yeah. All put back into the system. You can tell how powerful the Christian message is by the amount of force we put on the Right. Because without that message, then the devil feels and it's kind of an obvious salute. I mean, church, you know, be faithful to our faith and, and bear testimony to that. And the, the world will, will be a beacon of light in a world that's extremely dark. But Christians often become millenarians. We think that the solution becomes, we got to do something. We got to work with God. We got to bring about, you know, the change that we want. Yeah. Continue Hegelianism without its spirit, and even communists recognize a mistake in that. And that's why, in the 70s, there was a discussion among communists saying, "Well, how are we going to represent communism so that it's more acceptable to society?" And they understood that they needed to add myths and the spiritual component. And I don't know. To me, there's a whole other story going on there. Yeah. So one of the one of the interesting discussions part of this whole lecture is is that a lot of the a lot of the sons of prominent Protestant pastors ended up becoming thinkers that destroyed our world. <laughs> Marx, Young, 
um, Darwin, like some of the, not Nietzsche, but some of the big thinkers of, of the 19th century were all children of Protestant, Protestant ministers. Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran. Oh, really? Oh, of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This um, progressive, the progr progressive movement, it seems that it's um, been putting its tentacles within our Western society for for over hundred years, over hundreds of years, and it's embedded itself into the system, our systems of government. What I've been uh, impressed with is how quickly in our in how quickly everyone can get on the same message almost immediately around the world. <laughs> I mean, it's just in our response to COVID, for example, yeah, everyone immediately got on the same talking page. The hive mind. Yeah. Almost like there's a spiritual network or a component of this. <laughs> I mean, and they're all saying the same things, and you see degrees of that. Who would have thought in Australia and New yeah. Zealand and some of the other places? And in Canada, you go in and you see how quickly so, they, how quickly they get on the same talking points. On the so before we go down this rabbit hole of like <laughs> oh you know there's evil out there again, in the Book of Revelation, I find this fascinating. But when there's this point at which in, in Revelation 13, you know the big beast chapter, all the kings of the world hand their crowns over to the single entity, the Antichrist. Well, guess who put it in their minds to do that? God. God did that. Who's orchestrating all this? And who's doing it for our good? So is there anything for which we do not have to give thanks and praise? You know, if this is the, if this is the end, like, awesome. You know, think, I mean, think of the martyrs. Think of Justin Martyr or whatever. He's like, it's this weirdest guy to read. I mean, he's like, in route to Rome. He's like, I'm getting there. I'm almost there. And the beasts are going to gobble me up. I can't wait. Because in that beast's mouth is Christ. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I just made a note um, that was interesting. The leadership conference that you talked about going to yeah. and how everybody was to make a yeah. sign. And I thought, okay, so if all these people are doing that, they're not leaders, they're followers. <laughs> I already It's kind of like yeah. the world leaders that's going on right now. They're not yeah. leading their own nations, they're, they're all following yeah. one another. It's the leader. I mean, that's, that's part of the Gnostic component, the leader. Yeah. The, the, the slide about the logos versus reality. I, I guess I've seen for years another manifestation of that is road rage. And your steel box oh my does something to you. You act, you act insane. You go to the grocery store and someone cuts you off. Oh, excuse me. That. Sorry. I, I can't believe you just brought that up. Because that happened to me. I, I'm a road rager. And that happened to me literally a couple days ago and I thought I got to tell that story because that, that's the same thing. But like when we look at someone disconnected by that plate of glass and we see them just as this like two-dimensional image, we, we manage their, who they are, and when we're in road rage, what is that person? That jerk! Like, what kind of idiot is he? He's like, a, he's like a, the essence of evil over there. And then, and then you start dealing with him like that, where he's exactly right. If that would have happened in like, the story, would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I really apologize. Like, oh, you're a nice guy. <laughs> it's funny that you bring that up, because it's... All right, anything else? All right, you guys look like you're anxious. <laughs> Get out of here.
What a wonderful presentation. Thank you for uh, bringing us to those great conclusions and the vision of the Church of God. Thank you all for coming. Again, thank you to the Evangelism Board. Pastor uh, you Swanson, know, uh, you weren't here before, but we did you know, talk about you being the founder of uh, the Apologetics Conference. So I had to bring it up again. You know, you missed it. I think you're trying to avoid it. You know, you're waiting outside, but now you can't. But, uh, but we give thanks for this conference, and uh, what a wonderful opportunity for Christians to meet together. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us the vision of light in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can partake of this in your word and your sacrament. Dear Lord, send us home in safety so that we might continue to spread this light in the world with the hope of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Absolutely.